Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Aristotelian Society. Uh, it's a pleasure tonight to introduce Ursula Rentz from Klagenfurt, who's going to talk to us about self-knowledge as a personal achievement. Ursula. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm extremely honored to be here. It's really special for me. It's a special occasion. Um, there is a handout which just gives you some of the main claims and might help you to find your way through the paper. Finally, a final introductory remark. If I'm not talking loud enough, please make a sign. I've been told that the, the room is not really good in terms of acoustic. Okay. Recent discussion about the conception of self-knowledge in analytic philosophy has largely been constrained by the concern to account for the distinctive way in which we know certain of our own properties. To do so, philosophers have either posited that self-knowledge is a special manner of relating directly to one's mind, a manner that essentially differs from the way in which we know other minds, or they have argued against this assumption by claiming that self-knowledge can be modeled through an analogy with the procedures by which we know other people, implying that the impression of our being immediately related with ourselves is an illusion or a merely phenomenological effect. While both of these camps have drawn on the observation that self-knowledge is at least characterized by some sort of prima facie immediacy, they have disagreed over whether this appearance has to be taken seriously or rather explained away. Moreover, there are several factions within these two major camps of the debate. Thus, no general agreement has been reached apart from the notion that there is at least a prima facie difference between the way in which we know some feature of ourselves and the way we know the, the same features in others. While I have learned a lot from this discussion, I've never been wholly satisfied with it. It has long seemed to me that most, and in particular analytic philosophers, have missed that feature of self-knowledge that has most attracted my interest. What I have sought to understand is not how I relate to myself when I'm aware of some pain state or of my intention to go for a walk tomorrow afternoon, but rather what, among other things, the ancient Greeks had in mind when they inscribed on a tablet the imperative, know thyself, and fixed it at the Apollo temple in Delphi. What precisely did they have in view when they called for self-knowledge? And why did they think of self-knowledge in terms of an achievement or even of an ideal, the reaching of which requires that we try really hard? In other words, what troubled me about the recent concern of philosophers with the prima facie immediacy of self-knowledge was that by focusing on this feature, they might just have missed what makes self-knowledge important for our lives and the philosophical engagement with it vital. For why should we count something as an achievement that we are, as it were, getting for free? Over the years, 
My overall view on the recent discussion has changed. I now think that insights can be gained from it that may help account for the ideal sense of the term self-knowledge. Yet, while there is increasing interest in the more substantial or value-related aspect of self-knowledge, the problems of self-knowledge being a personal achievement is still a ruefully under-researched topic in analytic philosophy. Notably, when analytic philosophers reflect on the value of self-knowledge, they often locate it in the idea that self-knowledge is fundamental for the mental capacities of human subjects. However, while this shows the significance of prima facie immediate self-knowledge for mankind, it does not provide individual persons with any reason to strive for better self-knowledge and to improve their self-assessment. The question remained, why would it be advisable for individuals to engage in this sort of personal project? It is against this background that I have set myself the goal to propose a sort of working definition of this ideal self-knowledge, which in recent historiography of early modern philosophy has been referred to as Socratic self-knowledge. This definition is not only intended to exhibit the structural, feature, structural features of Socratic self-knowledge, I also hope to show why, when, and in what sense self-knowledge can be taken to constitute a personal achievement. I will pursue this task in several steps. To set the stage, I will first address the claim that self-knowledge is simply an equivocal term referring to different types of phenomena, not all of which constitute an achievement. It will turn out that while the distinction between several types of self-knowledge is of heuristic value, it does not help to account for the sense in which self-knowledge may constitute a personal achievement. Next, to get a first grip, of the ideal that constitutes Socratic self-knowledge. I will look at a few historical examples. I will show that these always emphasize the importance of one's applying some insight to oneself. Based on these findings, I shall in the re remainder of the paper develop my conception of Socratic self-knowledge. I will begin by discussing two epistemological features of Socratic self-knowledge before examining what qualifies knowledge claims with respect to their contents as contributing to a person's approaching the ideal of Socratic self-knowledge. <coughs> Together, these results will allow me to establish the premised working definition and to address, albeit only in a preliminary manner, the question as to why Socratic self-knowledge is an ideal that is worthwhile to pursue. I will conclude with a few remarks. So let's come to some terminological issues. The question of how self-knowledge can be considered the object of some ideal is often discarded by the implicit suggestion that we are confronted with different ideas that have to be kept apart and are only for contingent reasons subsumed under the same terminological label. This suggestion, if voiced at all, takes its departure from the following distinction between two phenomena. There is, it is claimed, 
on the one hand, what philosophers called self-knowledge, namely the prima facie, immediate, epistemic relation we bear to our conscious states or attitudes. And on the other hand, there is what laymen refer to by the same notion, and which consists in any knowledge we may have of ourselves as persons or as human beings. It is certainly useful to introduce a terminological distinction here. It is one thing to assume some sort of basic self-relation or to claim that some sort of self-awareness is necessary for human mental life. But it is another to invoke self-knowledge as an ideal term which denotes a specific kind of human excellence. Let us therefore join the historians of philosophy and use Socratic self-knowledge to refer to the latter phenomenon. Now, even apart from this terminological concern, one may feel the need to discern several types of self-knowledge. Considering what has been named self-knowledge in history and using the distinction between properties of ourselves that we may epistemically relate to, I have recently suggested to distinguish the following types of self-knowledge. One, self-knowledge of one's actual states. Two, self-knowledge of one's standing attitudes. Three, self-knowledge of one's dispositional properties. And four, self-knowledge of one's being subject to the human condition. It is tempting to, th to think that once these types of self-knowledge are distinguished, we can safely assume that only instances of type three and four are connected with the ideal of self-knowledge, whereas types one and two are marked by the prima facie immediacy that is of interest for analytical philosophers. In fact, classicists tell us that what the Greeks had in mind when articulating the Delphic injunction was anthropological knowledge, or knowledge of the human particular. In particular, of course, the condition of mortality, knowledge of the human condition, sorry. Likewise, one might think that what psychological counselors or psychotherapists have in mind when they support us in getting a better grasp of ourselves is mainly improved knowledge of our own character, dispositions, temperament, capacities, in short, of all sorts of personality traits. It may therefore seem natural to take the above classification as proposing that Socratic self-knowledge just lacks the sort of prima facie immediacy that has been of interest in recent debate. Admittedly, as already indicated in the introduction, it is pointless to voice an imperative calling for something which comes more or less for free. If there is such a thing as Socratic self-knowledge, it must consist in some knowledge that is not provided merely by our having some feature, but requires some additional effort, an effort that may even involve the application of some specific empirical methods. Socratic self-knowledge must be conceived as something people may or may not acquire during their lifetime. Moreover, it seems plausible to assume that such knowledge is largely at stake in self-knowledge of types 3 and 4. 
Yet, it must be emphasized that the proposed division does not as such address the question of what it constitutes, of what constitutes Socratic self-knowledge. For the question remains why three and four may at all count as types of self-knowledge rather than of psychological or anthropological knowledge applied to the person one is. Note that we cannot dismiss the notion that they are indeed forms of self-knowledge, or else we can no longer assume that acquiring instances of them is different in kind from, say, mathematical knowledge or any sort of expertise, and constitutes another sort of achievement. Likewise, Socratic self-knowledge cannot simply be conceptualized as knowledge of the humankind. Notably, there are people who, due to their profession, have a huge amount of anthropological knowledge, while displaying a disturbing lack of self-knowledge in their actual behavior. In a nutshell, while the proposed classification if, is of some juristic value, a simple division of the field does not help capture that aspect of self-knowledge due to which it may be considered as a form of human excellence. But what then is Socratic self-knowledge? To get a first grasp, I suggest taking a closer view at a few historical examples in which the ideal aspects of self-knowledge are more or less explicitly addressed. To begin with, Imagine for a moment the situation of a Greek who is about to visit the temple in Delphi in order to worship the most sublime of the Greek gods, Apollo. Given this visitor's religious socialization, it would be pointless to assume that the inscription was meant to inform him of the fact that humans are generally considered mortal. Being on his way to Apollo, he knows this quite well. Less pointless, though, is it to conjecture that the inscription was intended to invite the visitor of the temple to affirm that, in contrast with the god he was about to worship, he himself was mortal? The reader of the inscription was not just expected to acquire some bit of anthropological knowledge, but to acknowledge that some anthropological fact, namely human mortality, applied to himself too. In other words, to obey the Delphic in injunction would require engaging in self-referential thoughts or I-thoughts, and essentially so. A similar point can be made with respect to many historical texts that aim at guiding their readers in their self-reflection and that employ special textu textual genres such as narratives, dialogues, monologues, etc. for this purpose. When, to take a famous example in the beginning of the court's meditations, the first person narrator tells us that he was struck by his mistakes and therefore wants to inquire into the sources of his epistemic falli fallibility. This was clearly intended to serve as a model for the reader's self-reflection. And this is even more obvious in the following passage from the court's discourse on the method, where he writes, quote, I know how much we are liable to err 
in matters that concern us and also how much judgment of our friends should be distrusted when they are in our favor. I shall be glad, nevertheless, to reveal in this discourse what paths I have followed and to represent my life in it as if in a picture so that everyone may judge for himself." End of quote. Remarkably, this passage not only expresses the exemplary character of the narrative employed in the discourse and the meditations, Descartes also explicitly invites the reader to, quote, judge for himself. He obviously thinks that liability to error which, like mortality, is classically considered one of the quintessential features of the human condition, that this feature must be acknowledged by each individual by himself and for himself. Thus, this example, too, indicates that Socratic self-knowledge involves self-referential thoughts or the acceptance that some putative anthropological fact applies to oneself. Let us now come to a final example. In one of his maxims, François de la Rochefoucauld writes, quote, our enemies come closer to the truth in their judgments about us than we ourselves, end of quote. As in the case of the Delphic injunction and in Descartes' narratives, the point of this maxim is missed if we reduce it to a lesson in anthropology. Voiced in the form of a moralist maxim, it articulates an insight which is expected to have a very practical bearing for the reader. To see why and in what sense this is so, we need to look at the way in which it functions epistemically. The question is, in other words, how this maxim is, is expected to be taken in by the reader. Before we can address this question, we must say a few words about the context and La Rochefoucauld's rhetorical strategy. Note that the maxim is voiced against the backdrop of the overall themes of the maxims, namely the problem which the passions and in particular self-love, amour propre, pose for man's self-assessment self or virtue. La Rochefoucauld assumes that Due to his self-love, man is extremely prone, prone to self-deception. Most tantalizing, man even deceives himself about the motives for his striving for self-knowledge, as well as about his achievements in this field. We may think that our aspiration is really to know ourselves better, and we may also believe ourselves to have learned something about us, while in fact we are driven by self-love, vanity, and ambition. Notably, for an author of moralist maxims, whose concern, among others, it is to help his readers to improve their self-assessment, this view poses a specific challenge. For against this background, the question arouse, arises how any reader can ever be taught something true about the real nature of his own mind and character. How does La Rochefoucauld respond to this challenge? One suggestion clearly is to read him as simply denying that this epistemic situation can ever be changed. Accordingly, the maxims would just offer a very pessimistic deflationary outlook on humans in general 
and on the issue of self-knowledge in particular, with the result that the very idea of there being some immediate self-knowledge of our intention is to be discarded from the outset. But one is not forced to interpret the maxims in this way. Instead, one can also read these texts as employing a particular rhetorical strategy aimed at providing its readers with insights which, despite such readers' disposition towards self-deception, result in an improvement of their self-knowledge. This would explain why the maxims try to surprise the reader more or less systematically. For instance, by confronting her with the verdict that even our enemies come closer to the truth in their judgments about us than we do ourselves. If we read this maxim along the lines of the second strategy, the question we have to address as philosophers, as philosophers interested in the issue of self-knowledge is not whether it's true or not that our enemy is in a better position to know us than we ourselves are. The crucial question is whether on what theoretical grounds this insight can come as a surprise. Evidently, the aforementioned maxim can be surprising only against the background of the presumption that we ourselves are always in the best position to judge ourselves. In other, word, in other words, that our enemy should be in a better position than we ourselves or to make judgments about us is surprising to the extent to which we accept that there exists a certain epistemic asymmetry between the way in which we know ourselves and the way in which others do. Thus, following the second reading, it is crucial for the rhetoric of this maxim that it presupposes some notion of some sort of privileged access of the first person. Yet if this is true, then what this maxim tries to show cannot be that there is no such thing as prima facie immediate self-knowledge, but rather that we tend to overrate its reach. What can we learn from these examples? Apparently, it belongs to the rationale behind the traditional imperative to acquire more self-knowledge that it affirms rather than denies the notion of epistemic asymmetry between first-personal and third-personal thoughts that one may have about oneself. This corroborates what I voiced at the end of section two, namely that Socratic self-knowledge cannot be reduced to the accumulation of any sort of third-personal knowledge, but requires that one self-ascribes some features to oneself in the form of I-thoughts. Let us now come to some epistemological features of Socratic self-knowledge. I began my considerations by pointing out that self-knowledge can only constitute an achievement if it is not provided to us merely on the basis of our possession of some feature. There is the presumption that Socratic self-knowledge requires some additional epistemic effort or involves some bit of a posteriori knowledge and so far, no argument has been provided against it. <coughs> On the other hand, I argued 
that the achievement envisaged by the traditional appeal to the ideal of self-knowledge cannot be reduced to the claim of third-personal knowledge, of some features holding of ourselves, but must involve self-referential thought. Taking these two points seriously, we can identify the empirical character and the irreducible involvement of the first person as two essential features of the epistem epistemology of Socratic self-knowledge. To put it in some somewhat more formal terms, we can employ some technical terminology introduced by Hector Neri Castaneda and stipulate that a person as only has Socratic self-knowledge of a fact about herself, say that S is F, if both of the following two requirements are fulfilled. First, that S is F is not known by S as being F, but a posteriori. And second, S knows that she star is F. Note that these two conditions do not constitute a full-fledged definition of Socratic self-knowledge. They only articulate our previous findings in a more formal manner. Still, having them both in view helps to identify two questions which have to be addressed in any discussion of the concept of Socratic self-knowledge. Firstly, the question is how conditions one and two can both hold of the same instances. Discussing the problem of self-reference, philosophers has, have often claimed that the usage of the first-person pronouns is an irreducible or essential property of I-thoughts. To underline the, import, the importance of this point, some have even described self-reference as an a priori element of I-thoughts, as it were. This does not really pose a problem, for clearly it must be possible for an I-thought to be known a posteriori, yet it raises the question of how we can make sense of these two conditions as complementary <laughs> characteristics of Socratic self-knowledge. Somewhat more troubling is another point. Drawing on two epistemological features, the two conditions are satisfied by cases that would normally not be considered as proof of special wisdom. For instance, my knowledge of my being 1.75 meters tall or 5 feet 9 inches, that's something I've learned today about myself. <laughs> that this is my <laughs> so the question is whether there is a possibility to preclude such items from being counted as Socratic self-knowledge. I think there is. And it is to address this concern that I will suggest a further condition, in the, but only in the next section. Yet I also think that this additional condition does not touch upon the epistemology of Socratic self-knowledge. And I would therefore admit that, considered from an epistemological perspective, my knowledge of my being five feet nine inches tall is indeed a candidate for Socratic self-knowledge. We can even use this example to illustrate how conditions one and two can be satisfied by one and the same instance of self-knowledge. That I'm five feet nine inches tall is something I do not simply know from actually being five feet nine inches tall. Instead, I must use a technical device, for instance a yardstick, to find this out. 
so clearly. My knowledge of my being, five feet nine inches tall, meets condition one. On the other hand, it also satisfies condition two, for we can certainly self-ascribe these features of our having this height self-referentially. My knowledge of my being five feet nine inches tall can obviously be entertained as an I thought, and we may think of situations where this is quite important. Imagine a case in which someone tries to intimidate you by making you feel small. In such a situation, you may calm yourself by thinking, after all, I'm five feet nine inches tall and no smaller than he is. It would not help if you thought in, instead, well, this person is, nine, is five feet nine inches tall and no smaller than that person. That it is an I thought which you, which you articulate here is absolutely crucial, although your knowledge that the predicate five feet nine inches tall <laughs> applies to you is obviously derived from some influential process. This shows that conditions one and two relate to two different aspects of Socratic self-knowledge. One touches upon the way in which some fact or that some predicate applies to oneself is learned, whereas two concerns the form in which the fact is thought. It is certainly no problem to, th to think self-referentially of some fact one has learned by empirical methods. On the contrary, it points to a phenomenological peculiarity of certain insights that we have about ourselves. Although obviously learned indirectly, some fact about us may strike us as being essentially concerned with us star. Thinking of some empirically learned feature in the form of I thoughts, we bring it in line with our immediate self-awareness. This is why we can learn important things about ourselves by observing others from hearsay or through reading novels. To conclude, we can answer our question of how it is possible that the very same bit of self-knowledge can be both known a posteriori and thought self-referentially by pointing out that these features simply refer to two different aspects of self-knowledge of Socratic self-knowledge, I have to say, aspects which, while being independent of each other, are both essential for it. It is one thing to ask how some fact is learned by a subject, but another to consider how a subject relates to the same fact in her actual thought. Let me now come to some considerations about the content of Socratic self-knowledge. In the previous section, I employed an example that is hardly considered a personal achievement, one's knowledge of one's height. The question remains how the concern can be addressed <coughs> that many instances of self-knowledge are just too trivial to be judged as some sort of genuine achievement given their particular content. To begin with, let me emphasize that no bit of self-knowledge can be precluded right away from counting as or contributing to personal achievement simply on the basis of its content. To see why this is so, it is helpful to look at cases of privations of self-knowledge. 
Imagine a grown-up man who always looked up to his older brother, even though he is now stronger, taller, and cleverer than his brother is. We would certainly judge it as a case of severe lack of self-knowledge or self-ignorance if he still thought of himself as smaller, weaker, and less intelligent than his brother. And we would also not judge otherwise if we could see how this distorted self-perception came about. This makes it quite clear that even seemingly trivial eye thoughts, such as this man's insight that he store is five feet nine inches tall and thus at least two inches taller than his brother, even these insights are in a sense a real achievement although we would usually take it for granted that adults have this sort of knowledge about themselves. This shows two things. First and foremost, it suggests that although Socratic self-knowledge is often thought of as a form of human excellence or even an unreachable ideal, we better conceive it as a dimension of human maturation that may be realized in a stepwise manner. By adding more and more insights, into all sorts of features about ourselves, we refine our overall grasp of ourselves and perhaps eventually some people may even achieve some sort of excellence in this respect. In a nutshell, like being knowledgeable in general, having Socratic self-knowledge is a property that comes in degrees. Second, the example also exhibits that it is a, is a matter of the particular context whether or not a given bit of self-knowledge constitutes an achievement. We can think of cases where a person's knowledge affects concerning issues such as her height or figure, the cause of her pain states, or the true nature of her feelings, turned out to be quite important for her further development. Moreover, keeping in mind that accepting such facts often involves overcoming some sort of psychological conflict we can conclude that, all considered, even the acknowledgement of trivial facts may constitute real progress in a person's maturation. This is, of course, not to say that any insight into these sorts of matter, matters constitute a personal achievement. It may be an achievement for a person to think that she star is no longer attached to her lover, whereas to say the same about another person or with respect to her relationship with her firmer, former husband is trivial. Thus, whether or not a given I thought is an achievement bringing us closer to excellence depends on whether, given the context, it contributes to a person's cognitive grip of herself. It must disclose to her some of her properties and in such a manner that she is willing to commit herself to the view of their being properties of herself. This has quite important implications. Apparently, whether or not some I thought is an achievement, bringing us closer to ideal self-knowledge is dependent on the particular context. Knowing that one is five feet nine inches tall can be revealing in some cases while it is trivial in others. And it may be revealing for some persons of this height, but not for all. In other words, whether or not some insights improves our overall grasp of ourselves is dependent on how it relates to other features of ourselves, such as 
physiological and psychological conditions, our personality, our culture and biography, etc. This indicates that self-cognition is holistically structured, as it were, and this seems to be due to the fact that our self is itself a, holistic, a holistically structured entity. It would go beyond the scope of this paper to say much more about this, yet it points to an important metaphysical background against which the very idea of self-knowledge constituting a personal achievement makes sense. One might say that this leaves us without any clue which knowledge regarding ourselves is really worthwhile to acquire. But this seems wrong to me. That the relevance of self-knowledge varies with context and person does not preclude any presumption regarding some contents that may have existential weight for all humans. The Socratic or Cartesian insight into the fundamental difference between the reach and nature of our beliefs on the one hand and the reach and nature of our knowledge on the other predominantly concerns a content that is taken to be of general importance to all humans. And the same holds most likely for insights into other facets of the human condition, such as mortality or other sorts of fundamental vulnerabilities. But this is not to say that voicing them expresses in all situations a deep insight. On the contrary, it often comes close to rehearsing a simple truism. On the other hand, there is the whole spectrum of personal features, biographical facts, etc., the relevance of which can only be defined with respect to the particular knowing subject. And sometimes it may even be such that its importance can only be judged by the subject itself. To conclude, we can say that a bit of self-knowledge qualifies Socratic self-knowledge only if it contributes to the subject's getting a better grasp of herself or her own nature. I am now in a position to suggest the following working definition of Socratic self-knowledge. A person S Socratically self-knows that she is F if and only if one the fact S is F is not known by S is being F but a posteriori. And two, S knows that she star is F and three, S by knowing that she star is F, gets a better grasp of who or what she star is. As discussed in the previous two sections, this definition combines insights into the epistemology of Socratic self-knowledge with the assumption that not all I thoughts are such that they really constitute a personal achievement. As condition one exhibits Socratic self-knowledge requires an epistemic effort that may involve the application of empirical means. Moreover, it shows why some obvious truths about us may strike us on a very personal level. Given condition two, it makes a real difference whether I think that powerful people generally tend to overall overrate their significance or whether I come to see that this tendency determines my own sense of my own significance. 
The considerations resulting in condition three, finally, have made it conceivable why some fact about us, which appears trivial from the perspective of the third person, can constitute a significant achievement for a subject, embracing it in the form of an I-thought. There is a crucial question remaining. Does this definition also hint at the reasons why <coughs> becoming more self-knowledgeable can be considered a meaningful end? Does it, in other words, reveal the sense in which achieving Socratic self-knowledge is worth striving for individually? Let me begin by voicing a skeptical doubt one is often confronted with when dealing with ideal self-knowledge. It might be objected that it is by no means certain that increased self-knowledge results in a person's being more virtuous or acting better, nor is it something essentially pleasurable that makes us happy. It is important to see in what respect this reservation is legitimate. Many insights that are typically considered as crucial lessons for the achievement of Socratic self-knowledge are not immediately good for us. Knowing the truth about us neither makes us happier, happier nor more virtuous. Simply in virtue of being entertained in form of some I thought. Note, however, that this doubt does not really undermine the notion that Socratic self-knowledge denotes an ideal that is worthy of being pursued. On the contrary, the above definition may also help us explore the intuition that there is something inherently good in Socratic self-knowledge, the understanding of which may also provide us with reasons for accepting it as an ideal. Following condition three, our knowledge of some additional fact about ourselves must result in a better grasp of ourselves. This does not simply posit a further criterion for Socratic self-knowledge. It also specifies the sense in which we are better off when we actually succeed in knowing ourselves better. We get a better grasp of who or what we are. The question is, of course, why we are better off with such a grasp than without it. There is an obvious reason to be mentioned here. Having a better grasp of ourselves provides us with good grounds for future self-guidance. So, whereas Socratic self-knowledge lacks immediate prudential value, it is likely to improve future processes of practical deliberation. Yet, there is another reason that is only rarely voiced, although it points at the very heart of the Socratic legacy. Consider what happens when a good friend of ours tells us some detail about his life or character. We get acquainted with a facet of this person that has hitherto been, been unknown to us. Unless his report about himself offends our sensibilities, it is likely to enhance our intimacy with him and to reinforce our friendship. And this, in turn, makes the time we spend with him more precious. My contention is that something similar happens in our own case. Socratic self-knowledge makes us better acquainted with ourselves. And in doing so, it is likely to enhance our self-intimacy and to foster a sense of friendship for ourselves. 
As a result, the very fact of our being alive may become more precious to ourselves. Some might object that there are many facets of other persons, including our best friends, which we would prefer not to know. It can go against our will that we get acquainted with some features of other persons. And in such cases, the enhanced intimacy is probably not really wanted. We want to decide, in other words, how intimately connected we are with other persons. This is indeed where the analogy ends. We can choose our friends, but not the persons we are identical with. This being so, it is certainly better to be in a relationship of intimacy and friendship to oneself than of ignorance. And this halts even if it requires us to accept features of ourselves, the knowledge of which may make us sad at first. In a nutshell, I think that Socratic self-knowledge is not such that it immediately makes us more rational or happy, but it is valuable in providing us with the grounds for a deeper and friendlier relationship with ourselves that makes our being alive more precious to ourselves. I now come to some concluding remarks. I've combined insights deriving from the history of philosophy with lessons from recent discussions about the epistemology of self-knowledge to develop a definition of Socratic self-knowledge. This definition proved instructive in three respects. First, it illuminates the structural peculiarity of certain insights about us, some truths which we find out in an indirect way may strike us as immediately concerned with us. This is because even facts that we have learned a posteriori and are not known simply in virtue of our having a certain feature can be maintained in the form of I-thoughts. Second, the definition also shows why it is so difficult to say in a general manner which contents are relevant for a subject improving her self-knowledge. Given condition three of my definition, it depends essentially on the particular context, whether some bit of self-knowledge constitutes an achievement in a given case and moment. Three, through the definition, we also got a first understanding of the sense in which Socratic self-knowledge is worth achieving assuming that it results in a better grasp of the sort of entity that we are, it provides us with the grounds for standing on good terms with ourselves. One might regret that the provided analysis falls short of many expectations. Nothing of what I said explains how, for instance, we can acquire beliefs that count as Socratic self-knowledge. But this is a misunderstanding Philosophical epistemology is not meant to instruct us about how to pursue episteme projects, or at least not primarily so. My exposition is also far from deciding recent debates on self-knowledge, and in particular, it does not contribute to a better understanding of the prima facie immediacy that has attracted the interest of philosophy. This does not preclude that there being important connections between Socratic self-knowledge, as I defined it, and the notion of there being some prima facie immediacy. 
On the contrary, we have seen that the role self-knowledge plays in thought and action in virtue of its prima facie immediacy has repercussions for the claim that Socratic self-knowledge requires people to have I thoughts. And this may even be noticed by the subject itself. It is at least reasonable to expect that if the acquisition of Socratic self-knowledge truly plays a part in shaping the relationships of persons to themselves, this is somehow even sensed by the persons themselves. Presumably, it was in this spirit that Shaftesbury rehearsed the ancients' claim that it was, quote, the peculiarity of philosophers and wise men to be able to hold themselves in talk. And it was their boast on this account that they were never less alone than when by themselves a knave, they thought, could never be by himself. End of quote. This was Shaftesbury about the ancients, and this was my talk. Thanks a lot. <laughs>